This is not because the Democrats are incompetent or because sinister Republicans keep thwarting the righteous liberal will. It is Democratic failure straight up and nothing else. The agent of change isn't interested in the job at hand. Inequality just doesn't spark their imagination. It is the point at which their famous compassion peters out. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do and get members-only bonus content, please visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf, This Is Hell, The Real News Network, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, The Young Turks, and Democracy Now!, So let me cut right to the bone here of what I think the problem is. The name of the problem is capitalism, the economic system that governs the United States, that shapes so profoundly our politics, our culture, our very daily life. I believe that that capitalism over the last 40 years has created a syndrome, a pattern, a behavior that culminates in the victory surprising to so many, of Donald Trump, let me explain. Over the last half century, or at least the last 40 years, capitalism in the United States has functioned in a particular way. It isn't unusual. Capitalism has functioned that way before, but it has done so with a kind of gusto, a kind of intensity, and a kind of relentlessness that has really shocked particularly the American people. What do I mean? Well, there are two basic syndromes, two basic behaviors of capitalism in the United States that I want to put in everyone's mind at the forefront. The first we tend to call automation. It is the desire of capitalists to increase their profits by replacing people with machines, computers, robots, those are the fancy names, but it's an old process, but it really heated up starting in the 1970s in a massive way that has changed every workplace in this country and indeed around the world. But it has meant very starkly that capitalists, who had the greatest incentive, of course, to replace the most expensive workers first with machines and then work on down as the machines proved more profitable than paying those workers. So it was the workers who did the best, who had the highest salaries, who had won the highest wages, often with enormous struggles of strikes for a hundred years, that were the targets. Automation whacked them but good for the last 40 years. The second way capitalists thought to make more profits over the last 40 years that is stunning was by what we can call relocation, moving production facilities, manufacturing, but now also services, out of the United States to other parts of the world where wages are much lower. Lower, in fact, in good part because of the earlier history of capitalism when it relied on colonialism and, and imperialism to fashion the rest of the world as providers of raw materials, providers of food, and providers of other necessary things for the capitalism to thrive in its center, Western Europe, North America, and Japan. 
Over the last 40 years, capitalists have left the United States in stunning numbers, decimating jobs, decimating the communities which used to live on those jobs. I often talk here about Detroit or Cleveland or Camden, New Jersey, or my hometown, Youngstown, Ohio, as examples of what capitalism has done. Again, getting rid of good jobs, high-paying jobs, unionized jobs in the process. So over the last 40 years, capitalism has delivered a body blow to the working classes of the United States. Men and women, white and non-white, skilled and unskilled. It's been a very hard time. The gap between rich and poor has grown back to the proportions it had at the end of the 19th century. It is an ugly economic landscape. Not surprisingly, the American people are agitated about this. They're suffering. They want to know why. But even more important, they want it to stop. They want this relentless Damaging of their jobs, damaging of their wages, damaging of their job security, cutting off of their benefits, reducing the public services, which might have offset what was happening to them in their wages. They want that to stop. For a while, they had the illusion it may have stopped when they became pioneers in the way of borrowing more money than any working class had ever borrowed before. And indeed, from the 70s into the early part of this century, the blow was softened as workers accumulated more and more debt to keep themselves going when their jobs didn't provide them with rising income. Debt for their car purchase, debt for their home purchase, debt using their credit card, and then the new one of the last 20 years, debt to send their kids to get a college degree even as the value of that degree for getting a job shrank in direct proportion with the rising indebtedness of working-class families seeing, seeking to do well by their children. Of course, in this scenario, the masses wanted change. And we began to see a pattern. Everyone running for president, Republican and Democrat alike, promised that he since we only recently had had a she, he would be different. He would bring hope. For what? For change. Let's recall eight years ago how Barack Obama decided on a slogan for his campaign called Hope and Change. Exactly. Every candidate had to try to appeal to the people suffering by saying, vote for me, I'm different. I'll make changes. I'll do something to stop or reverse what has happened to all of you. Every candidate tried it. I'm an outsider, they would say. I'm different, they would say. With each one that was elected, because he might be different, we have the same story. The promise betrayed. The different candidate turned out not to be so different at all. And that was true of Republicans, and it was true of Democrats. We were surprised eight years ago that an African-American could become the president. 
But in a peculiar way, he exemplified the same thing. He had an easier time making the point that he was different. His skin color spoke volumes in a country as beset by a history of racism as ours is. The very idea of a young black man running for president let us know something different was happening. Something new was happening. When that new different person, Mr. Obama, said he would make changes, millions of people swept him into office. The harbinger they hoped for change. Well, the fact is he didn't bring it. He couldn't, he said, but in any case, he didn't. You can blame many things for that. You always can. A recalcitrant Congress, insufficient pressure from below, bad advisors. You all know the drill. But I'm an economist, so I look for the economic dimension. And the economic dimension was that capitalism is a system. And as a system, it has a momentum, a structure, a way of posing and solving problems for itself. The president by himself cannot change that. Even if the presidents who've been elected, if we give them the benefit of the doubt and we say they tried to make change and we're being generous, the reality is they failed. They didn't do it. We'll never know how hard they tried, but we do know they didn't make the change because wages remain stagnant over the 40 years, decline of job situations continue, loss of public services is only worse, the instability of capitalism got worse, culminating in the crash of 2008, the system dictates to the politicians, not the other way around. Why is this important? Because Mr. Trump, therefore, had a problem. The problem was he had to be different. He had to make a case that people have become very cynical about, and for good reason. Oh, another politician who says he's different. Mrs. Clinton was different. She was a woman. Her problem was that she was so stuck in the establishment of the Democratic Party and of the government for so many years that the claim to be really different was a tough one for her to manage. She didn't do that very well, and I'm being as kind as I know how to be. Mr. Trump, therefore, could capture, if he did it right, the mantle of, I'm really different. And that's what he did, and he did it well. I am different in every way. I'm not a politician. I'm a businessman. I'm not a politician trying to become wealthy. I already am wealthier than any of them get and I'm vulgar, and I say outrageous things, and I act outrageous, and I shoot from the hip, and my Twitter account is full of things no other politician would dare be caught saying. That's a good way to suggest I'm really different, and I'm really going to talk about the suffering of the mass of people, and I'm going to speak against the globalization the immigration that I can plausibly blame for the problems that the American working class has suffered. Not a good argument, doesn't deal with the reality, 
but at least it pretends to care. So here we have another candidate promising change, giving hope to the mass of the working class that maybe, just maybe, change is coming. And looking at the alternative, Mrs. Clinton, you couldn't think that, at least not if you were paying attention even a little bit over the last 20 years. That's why Mr. Trump won. I feel it in the air, washing over me. The tsunami of the tide will drag us all to sea. Cause now we're traveling backwards. We're traveling backwards. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. You're right, this is not because the Democrats are incompetent or because sinister Republicans keep thwarting the righteous liberal will. It is Democratic failure straight up and nothing else. The agent of change isn't interested in the job at hand. Inequality just doesn't spark their imagination. It is the point at which their famous compassion peters out. So I, let's, I just want to stay within that stupid framework of the annoying people on social media. How successful do you think this strategy <laughs> is at getting votes, campaign donations, doing what makes a political party rich and powerful? Is it a successful political business strategy for a party's bottom line of money and power? Yes, absolutely. The answer to that is yes. The Democrats have a successful strategy. By the way, this is something that I, I, I try to make clear at the beginning of the book. And the book is called Listen Liberal, by the way. And, and I try to point out that the Democrats believe that they don't have to do anything different and that they will win not only the presidential election this fall, but that they will win all presidential elections uh, from here to eternity because – of the changing demographics of this country. So basically, they don't have to do anything. This is what they, they believe this most profoundly. They are quite convinced of this. Uh, and I'm here, I'm live, like I say, I live here in D.C., and I'm here to tell you they are utterly complacent about it. They do not need to do anything differently. They barely need to do anything at all. Uh, and they will win elections, they think, from, from here on. Now, um, that logic doesn't exactly work because if you've noticed, the Republicans have swept both houses of Congress and um, you know, a vast majority of state legislatures across the country. In fact, they're enjoying kind of a kind of a uh, you know high tide for the Republican Party these days, as, as as well as they have you know the most state legislatures they have ever controlled. Uh, you know, they're they're doing extremely well. But that doesn't really bother the Democrats here in D.C. They they just have they think they just have to wait a little while longer, and everything will come back their direction. Everything will turn around. Uh, they're they're profoundly complacent, uh, and they're you know they're very comfortable with who they are, uh, and you know with their with their uh, their coalition, the coalition of the ascendant. They're very happy about the way things are going, and they don't think they need to do anything differently. Um, I'm here to tell you, brother, that's the way it is. So, what explains this belief apparently among Democrats, and especially those who are named Hillary Clinton and support her candidacy, that there is a need to be bipartisan, to be concessionary, to be practical and pragmatic, and not to achieve the goals of you know, things like universal health care, free university tuition, fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage? What explains that belief among Democrats that there's a need to be bipartisan? Well, that's a, that's you're, this is I think more of a psychological thing, or or a, okay. So the, the 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 main thesis of the book is that um, 
is that the Democrats are a class party, but the cl- it's not the working class. The class that they represent is the professional class. And a lot of the sort of weird things about Democrats can be easily explained by you know consulting the sociology of professionalism, which I do at, at some length in, in, in the book. And what you discover is that professionals are, uh, you know, the idea of consensus is this is one of the most important things in the, in their world is that you you know this is how you make decisions you come to a professional consensus and there's also among uh, professional class Democrats a kind of distrust of of politics they they think they know the answers. And uh, they think everybody else knows the answers too. This is if, if, if you ever read the Washington Post, this is completely the attitude of their um, their op-ed page, uh, or I should say, of their editorial page. Everybody in Washington, they think, knows the answers, and the answers are to uh, cut entitlement spending and balance the budget. This is a, an obsessive subject with the Washington Post, and everything else, you know, every other policy that you want to talk about, free trade antitrust enforcement, all the things that, that, you know, what to do about Wall Street, all the things that, 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 that I talk about in Listen Liberal, they, they think they know the answers. And uh, in fact, they're absolutely certain that they know the answers. And they're certain that you know the answers too. You, meaning, you know, the Republicans over there. Everybody knows the answers. And the only thing that is stopping us from putting them into effect is, uh, you know, partisanship, which is this, you know, this curse on the American mind. And so, they, you know, they, they the the kind of people I'm describing have this uh, bipartisan ideal, you know, this consensus ideal that they never can really reach. But you look at Bill Clinton uh, was constantly reaching deals with the Republicans in Congress. You know, the guys who impeached him, <laughs> he was constantly striking deals with them. You look at Barack Obama, who, um, you know, the grand bargain, how he he bent over backwards to please these guys out of this same sort of misbegotten uh, uh, desire for consensus, uh, and and I'm telling you, it all goes back to uh, to their to their sort of class background. This is this is where it all comes from, from who they are, and you know, and 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 the way that they came up in the world. You're right. The uh, bipartisan conciliation was the theme of Obama's famous keynote speech at the 2004 Democratic Convention. It was one of the themes of his 2008 stump speech when he talked so inspiringly about the politics of addition, not the politics of division. What was shocking about all this was to realize that Obama believed these cliches. How much can we blame this on a maybe reacting to a media narrative that opposes gridlock? Uh, the media believes it too, but they look these these guys both believe it. They believe it very sincerely, and that was that was sort of a, an awakening for me, uh, you know, uh, th- discovering that that's something that he believed in. But like when he talked about renegotiating NAFTA, no, he didn't believe in that. When you know, getting tough with the banks, no, 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 no. Oh, but but you know, bipartisan consensus. Oh yes, he believes in that. And that's and and when when I say the Washington Post is right there with him, and the New York Times is right there with him, this is all because they 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 are uh, representatives of the same social cohort. This is the I call them in the book. I call them the liberal class. You know, the, and you you can make fun of their tastes, and you can talk about where they live and what kind of cars they drive. You used to make fun of my car, by the way, back in the nineties. <laughs> but the, the, you can you can you can do all that stuff. But what's what's really intriguing to me is the kind of political views that that go with this social class. By the way, and the Republicans don't share this stuff. 
So the Republicans are not particularly interested in uh, bipartisan consensus, you know, and they, and they, but they can see that the Democrats are and that the Democrats are driven by something that is deeper than logic and understanding, something that's, de- that's, that's deeper than reason, okay? And it's this kind of class uh, conviction, you know, that all us fine, educated people here in Washington, D.C., we all know the real answers to these things. There's also, by the way, uh, when I talk about class conviction, there's also a lot of class prejudice among the Democrats, uh, and particularly class prejudice towards working class people. And there is just loads of it. you know, and this is this is one of the when we talk about inequality and the problem of inequality. One of the big problems is that they just really don't care about uh, working people. You know, the, the that's you know they they care about them in the way that they, you know they care about anybody that that's suffering, but they don't respect them. They don't think too highly of their intelligence. You know, you go back look at look at a debate like the debate over NAFTA. I bring this up time and again because it's you know we're, we're fighting it out yet again this year. And it was there was this great article about it in the New York Times the other day. But if you go back and look at the original debate over NAFTA, it was a straight up class division, where you had uh, educated and wealthy people on one side and working people on the other. This is back in 1994, and so you know you have the Clinton administration siding with the Republicans in Congress to get it passed, and the Democrats who at that point were still very much a you know Democrats in Congress were still very much a working class kind of party you know, fought against it. But the the terms that the, the people who were in favor of NAFTA would use to describe it were always about intelligence, always had to do with how smart you were. You know, uh, it, it's a no-brainer, they would say, that you should support NAFTA. They would have, you know, 283 economists sign a petition to say that free trade is this awesome thing. And, uh, you know, and it's like something that you were supposed to have learned in your first day of economics class in college. It's always about, it's always about how learned you are, understanding that free trade is a good thing. Well, here we are 20 years later, and it turns out the, um, the working people and the unions and that sort of, they were right. All along, <laughs> you know, what do you know about that? The guys that listened to those economists, they got it wrong. The ones who took EQ, who thought they were remembering what they learned in, in Econ 101, they got it wrong. Uh, you know, but but you there you just you can't do anything with this kind of class prejudice that these guys have. There's no there's no way to argue with it. You know, it's it's too deep seated. How much can we, because you had an article in The Guardian about the candidacy of Donald Trump, how much can we blame the Democratic Party in turning its back on the working class for the ascendancy of Donald Trump? I think you can to a certain degree, because the Democrats, um, back in the Clinton years when they when they did that, I mean, well, this is, so one of the things that I do in Listen Liberals, I trace the uh, abandonment of, the, of of working people in the middle class by the Democrats. And they were right up, they were right out, out in the open about this. They didn't try to conceal what they were doing. Uh, you know, they, they said it openly. This is, this is what our strategy is. We are, we are dropping these guys and we're becoming the party of the professional class. Okay. They said this, this is not, uh, there's no, no debate about it. I mean, there was, there was a huge debate about it at the time, but they, they, they that they did this, it's right out in the open. Uh, and the, in the Clinton years, they had a saying, they still have a saying, when they would do, when they would, they would injure or insult various constituent groups. Like you remember Jesse Jackson with the sister soldier mo- moment, right? They would, they would go out of their way to insult certain parts of the Democratic constituency, and the reasoning was that these people had nowhere else to go. You could do whatever you wanted to them, 
So you, NAFTA, you could injure, uh, you could you could actually you know wreck the life chances of working class people, and there was nothing they could do about it to you as a party, to you as a politician, because they had nowhere else to go. Well, you know, look at what's happening now. They've they've found somewhere else to go. I mean, and it's kind of horrible and it's awful. You know, it's frightening. Donald Trump is, but that is the, that is the kind of you know, that is the, what what would you call it? The like hundredth ripple of this rock thrown into the pond way back when. And you write in that article. I mean, I don't, I don't mean the Democrats intended for it to, to shake out this way. Of course not. But, you know, doing something like that, yes, one thing led to another. You so discreet, why don't you what they say? Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club, who's doing away with the need to choose between price and quality to get an amazing and affordable shave. They sell high-quality razors and shaving products and mail them directly to you, which means you no longer have to even leave the house to get yourself looking presentable enough to leave the house. Plus, they're super affordable. In fact, Dollar Shave Club is about one-third of the price of the giant razor corporations. And Dollar Shave Club is so confident in the quality of all of their products that right now they're giving you your first month for free when you join the club. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com best. Pick the razor that works for you from their lineup of amazing blades, it's that simple. If you want a first-class shave, choose their executive blade and combine it with their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for the smoothest shave ever. Here's your chance to see, for free, why over 3 million members already love Dollar Shave Club. You only pay for shipping, and then after that, it's a few bucks a month, no long-term commitment, no hidden fees. So there's no reason not to do it. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com best. That's dollarshaveclub.com best. You rock a cup around the seat Why don't they do what they say, say what they mean? The Sanders moment opened up a, a kind of a, a, sh- a rip, a shred in, in mainstream politics. Uh, it, 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 I don't think anyone that constructed the modern Democratic Party or Republican, but in this case Democratic Party, ever imagined that any candidate that was progressive and would really challenge and use words like the oligarchy and the billionaire class and all that could ever raise so much bloody money. Amazing. And now that because of that, I mean, you had a real horse race here. And whether it was rigged in the final analysis or not, I mean, whatever. Um, I think that isn't the primary reason Sanders lost. I mean, just things that were weaknesses in the campaign and... And, and why wouldn't there be? I'm sure Sanders was more surprised than anyone that it ever, be, sure that it ever became Absolutely. competitive. Absolutely. But but if one and I do think of the Republican and Democratic parties as actually part of the state, it's not like there's a government and parties run over here and then somebody gets elected to the You're government. Right. They're actually part of the state apparatus. That Sanders campaign was a, was a fracture, a tear in a big, important piece of the state. Um, on the other hand, that movement that was all behind Sanders, uh, kind of the air, to a large extent, has gone out. A lot of people are wondering what's next. There's talk about down-ballot, focus on down-ballot races and so on. Uh, what do you make of that moment and, and, and what you think comes next and what should people be doing next? Were you disappointed that Sanders didn't run as an independent? 
No. Personally, you're asking yeah. me? No, I, I think it was clear he never would. You have yeah, to I think so he too. would and to be disappointed. I actually don't exactly. think, in fact, he should have. Exactly. I do have. I do think, if giving a personal opinion here, I don't think he had to give such full-throated endorsement. Right. I, uh, I think he could have been just anti-Trump and say, look, Hillary and I have disagreements, but we got to stop Trump. But yeah. the fact that he talks so positively about her creates illusions, and I don't agree with that. You know, people on the left who say that Occupy was a failure miss a lot of things. They miss the fact that the 1% to 99% was invented at Occupy. They miss the fact that Occupy linked up with Black Lives Matter around the execution of Troy Davis, and that became a whole energy about where is Obama? Where are we in this country? Um, the fact that the climate change activists are blockading Standing Rock and other places. These things are all part of what made the Sanders moment possible. So I don't think you would have had the Sanders moment without Occupy, without mass movement on the ground. And so I, you know, it was what it was, but I think it created, as you say, a break in the kind of establishment narrative. And I think more importantly, it introduced to masses of young people the idea that socialism was worth exploring. This happened also in 2008, incidentally. There were polls taken because Obama was called a socialist by everyone on the right for months. So I could picture some kid in Iowa Googling socialism and from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. Hell, it sounds biblical, you know, and I think that Socialism got a big boost then too. Even even Obama said that when he, in the last week yeah. of the campaign, when McCain was trashing him for being a socialist, right. and he says, "Well, my Bible teaches I should be my brother, brother's <laughs> yeah, keeper." That's really, right. Really, line I liked in the whole election yeah, yeah. campaign. But but the fact is that it's deeper than that. There's a real crisis in this country, and this is what animated the the Sanders campaign. It was a mass movement, but the mass movement is based on a real crisis, on real oppression. And I think that the political class and the, and the 1% have no answers for the crisis that we're in. In fact, if I were to name the political moment simply, I would say what's politically possible in, in mainstream real politic, uh, is up against what's urgently necessary if we're going to survive. And I think that contradiction is going to be acted out in a thousand ways. Standing Rock, the, the Native American seizure of, of the land and the water is one iteration of that, but it's going to escalate. And there's nothing that Obama or Hillary Clinton or the political class can do about it. And so we are in a position where we can dive into that contradiction in a way that's hopeful and confident, not optimistic, because we don't know what's going to happen, but we should dive into it with full force uh, to make sure that we're heard and that we're understood in the public square. Again, I don't know how to predict, and I don't, I'm not a predictor of what's coming, but it's very clear that the crisis in the Democratic Party is deep and abiding, and it's very clear that the crisis in the Republican Party is deeper and more abiding. The danger that we face, there's many dangers that we face, uh, of warmongering uh, country run amok with very little standing in the world except for military power, with a decreasing power in every other dimension, but military power ascendant. That's a treacherous, dangerous situation. But the other and thing, throw climate change in. and climate change is, you know, that's what I, when I say what's you, you look at Paris, Paris is a perfect contradiction. It's the best we could hope for. And it's completely inadequate. Yes, yeah, so, six of the leading climate scientists in the world came out a few weeks ago and said that if every country that fulfills every pledge made at Paris, we're still hitting two degrees 
warming by 2050. Exactly. So, so what we've got is they went to Paris. We got a better agreement than has ever been imagined. And yet they agreed to do half of what was necessary to actually solve the problem. So cataclysmic climate change, imperialism in crisis and decline, militarism on the go. And here's the other danger. The other danger in my mind is that the Trump campaign became a vehicle where all the white supremacists and nativist forces, which always exist, there's a material basis for them, saw each other, found each other, articulated a common program. That fascist base is there. That, and, and so that's not going away. So that crisis, the crisis in the Democratic Party, the growth of an understanding that capitalism can't solve the basic problems that we're facing as a, as a nation or as a world, these things are coming to a head, and that means we ought to all be absolutely ready. Get your running shoes on and, you know, pick up your fist and get ready. Get organized. Get organized. Yeah, and there's not a lot of time. Not a lot of time. I think the crisis, the contradictions are very, very real. You've observed very closely Bernie Sanders' movement. What do you think he should do right now, both in terms of mass rallies, perhaps, before the end of the year? How does he bring his followers together who are going in all directions, despairing? Some voted for Hillary, some voted for Trump, some stayed home. A few might have voted for the Greens. What would you recommend to Bernie Sanders? Because he has the only operating asset electorally left in the Democratic Party on the national scene. Well, first of all, I would say that I, we woke up this morning and with Bernie Sanders as the de facto leader of the Democratic Party in America. Now, that may not be true in a week or a month or a year, but it's true this morning. And the first question is the one you've just posed is what, what will he do with that? Will he know what to do with it? There's some things that people haven't proven very good at so far, and that is knowing what to do organizationally. But to be fair, it's a very complex question. The first thing he can do is make a decision to disempower himself in the following way, to make to find a way for the actual assets of his campaign to become the property of the people who built it. This is what a democratic socialist would want to do, you would think. And it's the opposite of what Obama did. Obama in 2008 built the largest grassroots political, electoral political movement, certainly in the nation's history, and then took it private and put it under the aegis of a couple of his corporate donors, quite literally, uh, put them in charge of it, and they never had another meeting. And they just did what so much of the left has done, which is turn a grassroots movement into a Washington-based pack with a grassroots mailing list. And so the, the challenge here is for Bernie and for the left to find out a way not to do that. Two of the glaring defects of left or, or shortcomings, I think, were have been exposed in this campaign and recently. One is that unlike progressive movements in other countries, we don't have a public integrity movement that is strong. And we also don't have uh, a peace movement. I you're talking, Bill, you're, you're talking about public corruption, right? When you talk about public integrity, mm -hmm. 
Okay. You want to elaborate? That? Yes, that's yeah. right. That's right. We, we don't have an anti-corruption movement mm-hmm. in this country. And I mean, Common Cause, I appreciate what they do, but there hasn't been a strong, again, we don't have a strong independent uh, progressive movement, and it would strengthen the Democrats, uh, I'm almost sure, and the progressives for certain if they became more independent and resumed a kind of more arm's length relationship with the party. They have to do some building. The two areas that strike me as the areas in which we're weakest are uh, one, public corruption, and two, peace. And we've had strong peace movements before. We don't have one now. And other areas, we have a lot of other building to do. So it's not just up to Bernie. That piece of it is up to an awful lot of people to find ways in which organizations as diverse as churches, nonprofits, and, and PAC can find a way to work together. And uh, Bernie's job is to go out there, I think, and continue to provide some spiritual leadership to this thing and to help frame the message and to be very much a part of that. It's not true that the country's just waiting for someone to run on exactly what progressives think. We have to do some retooling of our own. Our message isn't quite ready, and we need to go through a policy process. I'll just finish by saying I, a mantra I've repeated in many articles and speeches over the last year. Policy precedes message. First, you figure out what you believe and then how to tell people about it. If you find the right, concrete, compelling, and specific idea, it will do your fundraising and your organizing for you. That's how the freeze, that's how your movement, that's how every great progressive movement operated. Some people think that Donald Trump, using his own inimitable language, hijacked the progressive view of politics, apart from his bigoted and racial and misogynistic remarks. I want to play his last national TV ad. Remember, he was outspent at least four to one on national TV. He had no celebrities going around for him, as Hillary Clinton did. He had no ground game to get out the vote. He was actually opposed by most CEOs and most media editorial positions, and he still prevailed in the Electoral College. Now, take away the section in his ad on immigration, and I want you to react to this two-minute ad That was his final message to America. And one of his memorable phrases was, this is our last chance. And of course, you know how many people thought they knew who our was in this is our last chance. Jimmy, let's play this two-minute ad. Our movement is about replacing a failed and corrupt political establishment with a new government controlled by you, the American people. The establishment has trillions of dollars at stake in this election. For those who control the levers of power in Washington and for the global special interest, they partner with these people that don't have your good in mind. The political establishment that is trying to stop us is the same group responsible for our disastrous trade deals, massive illegal immigration, and economic and foreign policies that have bled our country dry. The political establishment has brought about the destruction of our factories and our jobs as they flee to Mexico, China, and other countries all around the world. It's a global power structure that is responsible for the economic decisions that have robbed our working class, stripped our country of its wealth, and put that money into the pockets of a handful of large corporations and political entities. The only thing 
that can stop this corrupt machine is you. The only force strong enough to save our country is us. The only people brave enough to vote out this corrupt establishment is you, the American people. I'm doing this for the people and for the movement. And we will take back this country for you and we will make America great again. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. Okay, John Nichols, uh, Bill Curry, what's your reaction to this? Did he hijack the progressive message? Why didn't he have competition? And what do you think of the two-minute finale that you just heard? Start with John Nichols. Well, look, I heard that, and I heard actually the speeches in which he incorporated some of that language. Uh, This was a core theme of his, and of course he hijacked language. I mean, this is a guy talking about our movement. This is a guy talking about economic elites, about corporations. You know, I mean, I know a guy on this call who ran for president once and, and talked about movements and economic elites and corporations, Ralph. And, and did so from a progressive populist position. So Trump has clearly taken a great deal of the language. And it's an interesting thing, too. He, he took something very much from the left, where he presented himself as part of the movement. He didn't even say, I'm your strongman, I'm your you know, savior, I'm going to see you through this thing. He said, our movement. And so uh, this is very smart language. It was, also, it was language certainly informed by historic progressive messages and contemporary ideals, I think, in, in many cases. And so you mm-hmm. ask the, the exact right question, how did, a, so, how did a billionaire populist, right? That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the phrase for this guy. Mm-hmm. How did a billionaire populist, who is really more billionaire than populist and always will be, abscond with so much of the language? A, he's not a politician. He assessed the circumstance and he figured out what was needed, what would work. That was smart. He did that in the Republican primaries, and then he did it in the general election. But this is the heart of it. Democrats had a chance with Bernie Sanders to provide a deeper, clearer, uh, much more effective articulation of these ideas, these concerns, and a way out. They didn't just reject Bernie Sanders. There were a lot of people in power in the Democratic Party who said, oh, no, this guy, I mean, he would be a disaster. He would be, you know, he would lose. He's, you got to trust it to the tried and true people who've been running this thing for a very long time. Well, if you read some of the emails that went back and forth between these top Democrats, they were pushing away, not just Bernie Sanders, but Elizabeth Warren and Bill de Blasio and anybody who came to them and said, you know, look, this stuff is at the heart of what's going on. We've got to embrace it. We've got to become you know, better at talking about it. So, yes, Trump assessed the situation, figured out a language that was highly effective. It was a language Democrats could have embraced, could have made central to their campaign. They never comfortably did so. And they lost not just the presidency, but frankly, because we're revolving toward a parliamentary style system, not in reality, but in the way that voting occurs, they also lost a lot of Senate races and House races where people who were doing a better job of articulating that message were cut off, didn't get to succeed because the presidential candidate was so weak. Bill, what's your take on it? Bring in Bernie Sanders. What's your take on this ad? Well, first of all, I'll just make one small semantical quibble, and that is that Trump didn't hijack uh, populism. Uh, The Democratic Party made a gift of it to him, and he simply accepted it. 
the second thing I would just say is that I'm and, and and let me just sign on to everything John just said that that elite, as he alluded to, uh, made a decision that in the midst of a global insurrection against political corruption and, and economic oligarchy, that Hillary Clinton's pay-to-play politics and global finance capitalism would somehow play better than Bernie Sanders' democratic socialism. And, you know, every ideology thinks it's scientific, and the hardest ideology to expose is centrist ideology, because it always they do the best job at pretending to be empirical. But the fact of the matter is they ignored every poll they had, all the data they had, and even all the anecdotes they could possibly have accumulated in order to reach the conclusion that Hillary was a stronger candidate than Bernie. The Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the United States, and maybe even the planet have all been changed in ways no rational person could welcome. And I remain certain that if anyone other than Clinton, and certainly if you accept for just one moment that when all the polls say the right thing by such wide margins for so long, they might be right. Bernie Sanders could have won this had he been the nominee, like Roosevelt took Alf Landon. And if she'd simply put him on the ticket, he probably could have brought Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And I, I see no reason to doubt the thesis. So the Democratic Party has, again, as I said this morning, you know, never underestimate the capacity of an entire social order to commit suicide. And, and they did that. The last thing I just want to add, though, in just a sentence, and that is I also strongly agree with, with what John said earlier. The worst mistake we could make isn't, you know, some Clinton people will blame the Bernie people somehow. I'm sure that'll happen. I used to worry about it. But what I most worry about is that they're going to blame the people. They're going to blame the voters. They're going to say that all the voters are just like Trump. And as with all human change, the first road to growth starts with taking responsibility. The Democratic Party did this to itself. And while there are millions of voters who were no doubt racially motivated, there were millions of voters who've lost their pensions and the equity in their homes and their dreams of their children's college education, who've become addicted and suicidal, whose, whose mortality rates have diminished. And it's been years since they heard anybody call their name. And all that happened yesterday was uh, that they got a chance. to. It was just the one chance anybody had given them to say no. Last quick question. I want to sense your temperament here. Do you think after four straight congressional losses in the House of Representatives that Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer should step down from the leadership and open up a contest for new leadership of the Democrats in the House? Uh, I'll go first, because this is this is the rare issue in which I beat you to the punch. I wrote a piece on this. Well, one, my last piece on this was a year ago, and the one before that was three years ago. Absolutely. And if they don't, someone in the House caucus should rise up. The Chuck Schumer would be Wall Street's biggest friend in the United States Senate and become the minority leader on a voice vote. And that this failed leadership in the House, right across the board, yeah. remains in power. Yeah. Its failures t- is just tells you how little self-respect they have. And you're talking about Senator Chuck Schumer right. in the Senate becoming a minority leader. I'm talking about Senator Chuck Schumer in the Senate, and I'm talking about the House. And, I, and, and, and for Pelosi and Steady Hoyer and all the... I've called many times for them to resign or be ousted. And they, again, it's not, I have nothing against any of them. They're all, you know, they're all fine, but they've done a terrible job of figuring out what the right policy is. Okay. We had 30 districts go uncontested this year. There's so many things about them that, that have failed. Okay. If the Democrats don't bring in new leadership now, it's clear they're not committed to reforming their own party or bringing it back. Okay, John, what do you, what's your view? 
It's my turn to agree with Bill very passionately. Oh, good. Uh, I don't, this, has nothing, this has nothing to do with personalities. It's a much simpler equation than that. You know, parties that lose replace their leaders, right? I mean, it's just, this is very, very common. Sometimes you will give a leader a couple tries. You know, they let Tom Dewey try twice for president. It just didn't work. They let Adlai Stevenson as well. But, you know, the Democratic Party is in total crisis. Understand this. They just lost to Donald Trump. Okay. You don't have to really talk about it beyond that. <laughs> they also true. lost all sorts of Senate races to unbelievably ridiculous and awful candidates. And so at this most fundamental level, you just pause and you say, okay, we're not very good at this. We're not, and, and, and let's get good at this because that's the nature of the game. The first thing you do is you bring in a new group of people. But you also listen to something Bernie Sanders has said. This is a very big deal. Bernie Sanders says that they've got to just open that party up to young people. Everybody says, how are we going to get the young people engaged? How are we going to, you know, diversify our politics, open it up? Well, Bernie Sanders was bringing tens of millions. Well, I should say he was bringing millions, adding up to a vote that it was all over 10 million, but millions of young people into the process. Some of these states, he was getting over 80% of the vote from people under the age of 30. And as Sanders has said, you know, it wasn't like when he got done, the party said, oh, hey, we love your people. We want to bring them in. No, there was a fear. Now, Sanders doesn't say this. I say it. But I think there was a fear of his base because it didn't just arrive and say we want to fit in. It arrived saying we want a revolution. Revolutions rise. With deafening cries. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. So the DNC obviously had a miserable failure in this election. Uh, there was a great chance that they were supposed to take back the Senate. Uh, the seats that were up uh, were largely Republican. It was a great opportunity, and they blew it. Uh, they didn't take back the Senate at all. The Republicans still control it. They, of course, did not regain the House and uh, had the humiliating defeat against Donald Trump. So you, you really can't get a worse loss. So I, I have said from hour one that everybody in the building should be fired, DNC, should, uh, of course, go in a new direction. You can't possibly keep these losers. So now everybody acknowledges, of course, that's true. And by the way, not because of me, because it's obvious. Everybody agrees, right? So which new direction are they going to go? 
Okay, in the beginning, immediately uh, establishment folks, uh, folks were considered. Now, these are not necessarily the guys who were considered for the DNC, but these are, they were talked about sometimes in terms of maybe running for president in 2020, and in other ways talked about as the new stars of the Democratic Party. So let me dismiss them out of hand immediately. One was Tim Kaine. I don't know if they know this. He was part of the losing team against Donald Trump. No chance. Good night, Robichaud. No way. Chuck Schumer. <laughs> he was uh, getting ready to be majority leader in the Senate. Wrong. Minority leader uh, because he's part of the losing uh, Democratic Party. Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, otherwise known as Hillary Clinton light. Well, Hillary Clinton major didn't work. Why would we go to Hillary Clinton minor? Okay. Cory Booker, uh, Barack Obama light, secretly takes almost more money than anyone else in Congress from Wall Street and donors. Not remotely interested. No, no, no is the answer. So here are four people I suggest uh, that might take the uh, Democratic Party in a direction where they might actually win uh, the folks who actually figured out where independent voters are and, uh, and were right all along. So here's one guy that was right all along, Bernie Sanders. Now, the folks at the DNC, even on their way out, are going to be like, <laughs> Sanders, no way, no way. Hey, what difference does it make? You're all fired, okay? So now real voters should get to decide, okay? Now, I know you're still so proud that Hillary Clinton with her giant uh, lead in infrastructure and all the Democratic Party officials behind her and name recognition eked out a victory against Bernie Sanders. So you think, well, oh, no, we're redeemed. No, you are not redeemed. You lost to Donald Trump. You're the furthest you could be from redeemed. Now, Bernie Sanders uh, doesn't want the job very likely, so, but there's plenty of other great choices in that realm. So Tulsi Gabbard would be a lovely choice, great choice to lead uh, the DNC in a progressive direction. Nina Turner, uh, you, want, you want strong? You want populism? You want progressives? Go to Nina Turner. But I think the top candidate is Keith Ellison. Now, he's a member of Congress. Debbie Wasserman Schultz was a member of Congress. Um, so there's no reason why they should be opposed to him. He is one of the leaders in the progressive caucus. I thought the Democratic Party were progressives. Are you progressive or are you not progressive? Well, if you say, no, but let's go in a moderate direction, you know what you're saying? I'm not really progressive. I, I'm going to do what the donors tell me to do. I don't want a real progressive like Keith Ellison in charge of the building, in charge of the party. Ooh. No, no, no. We got to let the donors be in charge. No, that's how you lost. That's how you endanger the whole world by putting Donald Trump in charge. The answer is hell no. We're going to go for Keith Ellison. Okay, And so, look, the others are great, great choices as well that I laid out. But it seems like everyone is coalescing around Keith Ellison. And I would be super happy with that decision because it would be a smart decision. Not just for policy reasons, which, by the way, you should care a little bit about. But for political reasons, for electoral reasons. Because you were wrong. Your strategy was miserable. And it failed us all. Okay, so you know what happened just now while we're in the middle of the show? I just got handed a piece of paper that told me about it. The establishment panicked. And I had, I was in an interview this morning where they, uh, the reporter asked me about this because they realized, oh no, if we put another establishment person in, it looks like we can't trick them anymore. Remember when we did that cute little trick where we took out Debbie Wasserman Schultz and put in Donna Brazil, who's also a giant, giant Hillary Clinton supporter who leaked her questions while she was on CNN. <laughs> was that cute? No, it wasn't cute. So you know what they, uh, who just announced? Howard Dean. 
No. The answer is no. So, and I'll tell you why. Because, yes, Howard Dean, when he ran the DNC, did great. I'm not unaware of that. I was for Howard Dean. And, and he had electoral success. And then Rahm Emanuel tried to take the credit for it. Oh, yeah, it was tough. No, no, no. you didn't have the 50-state strategy. Howard Dean did. So I'm not saying no against Howard Dean because I, don't, I dislike him or that he wasn't successful before. No. No, it's now Howard Dean is part of the establishment, completely supported Hillary Clinton, and also works for a lot of those same companies now. Now, in the past, we've talked about all the money he's taking from those same corporate donors. So I, I'm not saying Howard Dean's a bad guy. I don't know who Howard Dean is anymore. I don't know who he is. What Howard Dean immediately announcing that he's running for the DNC is, that's the establishment saying, okay, 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 okay. Let's just, let's just go back to Howard Dean. Let's go back to Howard Dean. He's okay. We can live with Howard Dean, right? We can live with, he's taking corporate money. We can, take, we can live with Howard Dean. Let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. Here's my answer. No deal. No, no, no. This time, we go for actual progressives. Keith Ellison. We did not stutter. Keith Ellison. To talk more about the election of Donald Trump, we're joined by the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Glenn Greenwald, one of the founding editors of The Intercept. His most recent piece, Democrats, Trump, and the ongoing dangerous refusal to learn the lesson of Brexit. Glenn, it's great to have you with us. Why don't you start off by just sharing your response to what took place this week here in the United States, the election of Donald Trump and the defeat of Hillary Clinton? It's obviously a shocking outcome, in particular because the not just polling data, but all of the self-proclaimed experts in data journalism, this new field of journalism that has arisen that claims to only view politics through an empirical lens rather than through the dirty ideologies or um, partisan biases that everybody else is burdened with assured everybody that it was overwhelmingly likely that that Clinton would win. There were, every model had her at 85 to 90 percent, and, and yet she lost and, and, and lost pretty resoundingly, at least on the level of the Electoral College. She obviously won the popular vote, but that's not what matters. So there's a shock about the fact that all of our empirical models, all of the ways that we try and predict the future— have failed. Um, but then there's a an even greater shock over the fact that somebody who stands so far outside of the norms of our political traditions and, and ideologies is is now the president-elect of the United States. And, and in two months, we'll, we'll be sitting behind that large desk in, in the Oval Office commanding a massive military. Um, in fact, the, the, the most powerful and destructive military ever created in human history, as well as a gigantic nuclear arsenal that can destroy the world many times over, um, a vast spying machine um, that exists both uh, on foreign soil but also domestically. 
um, and this huge apparatus of power that has been built up by both parties over the last 15 years is now in the hands of, of somebody who, by pretty much all metrics, is clearly an authoritarian without much regard for the constraints of constitution or law. And, and I think what we're seeing in the aftermath of this is an attempt by Democrats who nominated a candidate, Hillary Clinton, despite knowing how weak and how vulnerable and how deeply unpopular she was across many sectors in the country, who nonetheless insisted on, on nominating her in the face of all sorts of empirical evidence that she would not only lose but could literally lose to anyone, that those very same people who, who insisted on, on marching behind her are now attempting to blame Everyone they can find, except, of course, the, from themselves, for this debacle. And I think that if if we're going to have any kind of constructive discussion in the aftermath of Trump's victory, um, it has to include, first and foremost, a discussion about why the Democratic Party has become a, a such a small minority party, a minority in the House, a minority in the Senate, um, lost control of the White House to someone like Donald Trump, is obliterated on the state and local levels. What is it about the Democratic Party that has caused huge portions of the American voting population to turn their back to it and, and to reject it? And I, I think we're seeing Democrats scrambling around trying to avoid that discussion by casting the blame on everybody else. And I think that will only ensure that this kind of event will continue to replicate itself in the future. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, in that piece, uh, you write, uh, quote, the prevailing institutions of authority in the West for decades have relentlessly and with complete indifference stomped on the economic welfare and social security of hundreds of millions of people. You point also to the many analogies between Brexit, the decision by the British public to uh, exit uh, the European Union. So could you say a little about those analogies and how Trump fits into uh, wider public sentiments, not just in the U.S., but also in Europe. It's incredibly striking, but also very alarming how similar the path of Brexit was to the election of Trump, because just like with the U.S. election in the U.K. during the Brexit debate referendum, British elites outside of this kind of circle of populist right wing Murdoch types um, pretty much were unified across ideological and party lines. Um, you had the the liberals and, and the labor centrists and, and the sort of more establishment conservatives united in opposition to Brexit. And they essentially stayed online all day on Twitter telling each other how smart they were and praising each other's columns, saying that Brexit was this uh, grave threat and this unique evil. And, and the opinion class that is considered respectable, meaning not the right-wing tabloids, um, essentially unified, just like the opinion-making elites in the U.S. outside of Sean Hannity and Fox News and, and, and Ann Coulter, that, that wing of Fox News and that right-wing circle were unified as well. You had leading neocon intellectuals and, and establishment Republicans and then the sort of establishment liberal pundits all in agreement that Trump was this grave evil, constantly praising each other and citing each other in this endless echo feedback chamber. And so the people who were supporting Brexit and the people who were supporting Trump weren't really ever heard from. They were just talked about in very contemptuous tones. These were the troglodytes. These were the uneducated idiots. These were the people motivated by malice and racism and xenophobia. 
And so they were sort of looked at like zoo animals, like things that you dissect and, and, and condemn. And because this opinion-making elite was so unified, um, it led so many people in both cases to believe that their victory was certain. Nobody thought in the opinion-making elite classes that Brexit would win, and the same is true of Trump. And then both before and after um, you had this result, what you saw is not any notion of accountability. Why are there so many people wanting to leave the EU? Why are there so many people supporting this person so far outside the norm? No accountability, no self-critique, only a way to distract attention from their own responsibility by just spouting hatred and, and disgust for the people who are being insubordinate. And what you have as a result are these decades of trends that we began by talking about that Senator Sanders described in which tens of millions of people have been trampled on by these policies of, of Western author institutions of authority who are essentially invisible and ignored. And the more you ignore them and the more you scorn them and the more you tell them that their grievances are invalid, the more they're going to be susceptible to scapegoating, the more their bigotry will be inflamed, and the more they'll want to destroy the systems and the institutions that they believe are responsible for their suffering. And so a lot of people who voted for Brexit, a lot of people who voted for Trump understand exactly all the arguments that were made about why each of them is potentially destructive and so dangerous. And they did it not despite that, but because of that, because they want to punish and ultimately destroy the institutions who no longer have any credibility with them and who they believe are responsible for the suffering and, and the lack of security that they experience in their lives without anyone really caring about it at all. And until we start to address that and, and until institutions, elite institutions take responsibility for it, those things are going to continue to fester and grow. And, and it very well may be the case that Trump and Brexit are just the beginning of this very alarming cycle rather than the peak of it. We just heard clips today from Richard Wolff on Economic Update explaining the economic angle of the collapse of working-class support for the Democratic Party. Thomas Frank was interviewed on This Is Hell before the election discussing where the Democratic Party abandoned its roots of being the party of the working man. Bill Ayers was interviewed on the Real News Network about the inadequacy of our current politics to face our current problems. Ralph Nader interviewed Bill Curry and John Nichols about Trump adopting progressive campaign rhetoric and where the Democratic Party should go from here. The Young Turks made their case for replacing the DNC leadership with a real progressive like Keith Ellison. And finally, we just heard Glenn Greenwald on Democracy Now! lamenting the Democrats' refusal to learn the lessons that could have been gleaned from Brexit. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's Stephen. I'm from the United Kingdom, in fact, from the People's Caliphate of uh, Birmingham. I don't know if you remember that Fox News thing a few years back. Uh, I just wanted to give a kind of UK perspective. What did you do, America? I would say 95% of the UK citizens are deeply shocked and horrified by the election of Donald J. Trump. But I guess I wanted also to just express some moments of hope. I listened to your uh, program, the last podcast, uh, just kind of retrospectively. 
the one with Ralph Nader and various, I'm talking about things to do post-election. Listen to it retrospectively after the election result. And I found what Ralph Nader was saying about it's easier than you think really, really inspiring. There's a journalist called Paul Mason in Britain who's a, worth looking up and he's published a kind of plan of action. And one of the things he's saying is do one thing, choose one thing. And that's what I do. I've, I've chosen, I'm, I'm involved in the divest from fossil fuels movement. Uh, we're trying to get a big pension fund in Birmingham. This is called the West Midlands Pension Fund. It is the ca- uh, large kind of council-led pension fund. We're trying to get them to divest from fossil fuels. That's the one thing that I'm doing. And I'm, tr- I, I'm, I'm an artist and I work within the artist community. And I'm approaching all my artistic friends, people who put on cinema events, people who are web designers, graphic designers, etc. And asking them just to do one little thing within their kind of sphere of influence and the things that they know best so asking them in what ways can you help us do this little thing this this small thing within our locality to push towards a better more progressive future i think with, with the arts we're kind of we're often very poor in terms of we don't generate huge amounts of income but we do punch above our weight in terms of visual we know how to craft things to have impact on a larger scale so I guess I'm saying that that's the thing that I'm going to encourage everybody I know. What ways that can you think you can help within your skill set to move towards, to borrow your phrase, a kind of theory of change, towards to push the things that we can in this moment of crisis. And I would also, I know there's some already some movement towards a strike on the 20th, a worldwide strike. I will certainly be doing something on the, the 20th of 2017 to show this side of the pond and our American cousins our disdain for what the, your president-elect or the president who will be inaugurated on that day. Um, love the show. I know that's a prerequisite thing to say, but I really do. I wish we had something similar over here in the UK. Um, but uh, we're, we're, this side of the pond, your cousins are with you and we are prepared to get on and fight. Good luck, everybody. AJ, this is Anthony from Illinois. I just got done listening to um, the episode from Tuesday. And I think we all, all progressives and liberals, are still trying to process what happened on election night, even though I think many of us deep down knew that the election was done with, I would say, months ago. But it's still a shocking concept. I wanted to thank you for posting the Ring of Fire interview with Tuesday's episode because I think as I'm struggling to find hope and trying to find agency with, you know, figuring out what I can and can't do, I think it really helped crystallize things that the movement, despite our best intention, should not be one person or one law or one election. This is a constant fight. And even though we're all entitled to our period of mourning and grief and questioning, it's something that we all need to reconcile around and we need to build community. As I'm calling in before the Friday episode drops, I am just wondering your thoughts on how we can bridge what appears to be the leftist divide between uh, democratic socialists and those on the far left, such as myself, and persons who are more in the centrist left, and I would say neoliberal leftists. Over the past couple of hours, I've seen a lot of blame going around 
on social media and in progressive circles of activism that I'm currently involved in. And I think a lot of it is misplaced more than it is valid. I really am thinking that if this division keeps going, that there will be no way to build a coherent progressive movement, at least in the next four years, if not two. Um, So, you know, any advice that you have and others have, I think would be greatly appreciated for all of us in this time. Thanks for the good work and let's keep fighting. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, just a quick answer to the question we just heard. How will the progressive divide be healed? I think that the short answer to that is it's going to get worse before it gets better and that it definitely will get better on its own because there is nothing like a common enemy to unite people. So, yes, things are worse now because we're fighting and blaming each other, and that will naturally go away when Trump actually takes power and we will coalesce against uh, whatever he puts forward. So the bad news is the divide will pretty much remain there. It'll just be hidden. It won't be talked about, and it will reemerge at a later time. Uh, But all of this is why I think it's so important that we focus on the direction of the progressive movement, and by extension, the Democratic Party, right now, because the way we influence the direction of that movement at this moment will make a huge difference down the road, which is why it's so important to focus on it now, uh, get appropriate leadership in place and uh, get us on the right foot to lead us forward. Secondly, today, I have an experiment I want to do. I want to try something new, and I want your help with this. Now, the voicemail line usually is for people who either disagree or agree with what was said, but they want to add something that wasn't said. Uh, It's not too often that someone wants to call in and repeat something that was said on the show. Because if if you agree exactly with what was said, well, then there's nothing to add, so no point uh, calling in. I want to try an interesting experiment, and, and I encourage all of you to call in and explain something that you agreed with in the show in a different way than it was said in the show. So the phone lines are still wide open to for disagreement or addition, but as an experiment... I really, really encourage you, if, if you heard something on the show and you think, yep, that's exactly how I feel about it, I want you to call in and try to explain the same concept. If you come to the same conclusion, fine, but just explain it in a different way. Come at it from a different angle. Build an argument, use bullet points, you know, like really make your case, but do it in a way that's different than was already done on the show. That's the experiment. I want to try this for you know maybe a few episodes, see if it sparks any interesting conversations, and we'll just see how it goes. So again, uh, the number if you want to chime in, 202-999-3991. And like I said, I want to try this for a couple episodes, so maybe be thinking ahead uh, for the next episode. You know, as you listen to the next episode, think to yourself, you know, let me let me focus on the arguments that are being made and see if I can come up with a different way of making the same argument.
And now finally, I just want to keep beating this drum. I highly encourage you to go to nationalpopularvote.com and get engaged in that campaign that is already going on. It is already more than halfway to its goal. And this is the sort of campaign that you can jump onto, become a citizen lobbyist, figure out uh, which of your state-level legislators, people who will actually meet with you in person, may you, know, you might be able to get them on the phone. If you write them a letter, you may be the only person all day that writes them a letter. Figure out who you need to get in touch with and get in touch with them and encourage them to support at the state level the interstate compact legislation to institute a national popular vote via the Electoral College. As they say, you want to strike while the iron is hot, and I don't know that the iron will ever be hotter than it is right now. So now is the time to get involved. NationalPopularVote.com That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Curse it past our own sad stories and Stories and forget who it is before.